0: If you make extraordinary claims, you better have extraordinary support evidence because we knew the world would be looking and saying, yeah, prove it.
1: Hello and welcome to the THE Connect podcast. This episode is produced in partnership with the University of Liverpool and I'm your host Ashton Wenborn. I'm joined today by three leading researchers in the field of archaeology, and I will let them introduce themselves today.
0: Hello, I'm Larry Barham, Professor of African Archaeology here in the Department of Archaeology, Classics and Egyptology.
1: Uh, I'm Dr
2: Nicola George, and I'm the Research Technical Professional for the Department of Archaeology,
3: Classics and Egyptology here at the Uni. My name is Peri Director at Motomoto Museum in Imbala, working under the National Museum's Board of Zambia. Thank
1: you very much for joining me today. So we'll be speaking about your work in the field of archaeology and how the University of Liverpool supports that work. We'll also be discussing the Deep Roots of Humanity project, which is an investigation of early technological change in South Central Africa. So to begin, maybe you could tell us what the Deep Roots of Humanity project is, um, What does it hope to achieve? Larry I know you've led on a lot of this research, so could you give us a bit of an intro?
0: The project started in 2017, it ended last year, and the aim was to examine a time period before the evolution of Homo sapiens, so before 300,000 years ago. From my work in Zambia over now 30 years, um, including Colombo Falls, I've started to realize that um, there were major technological changes happening in this period that map onto changes we see in East Africa, and in Southern Africa. So the project was really to focus on South Central Africa in Zambia to fill a a big regional gap in the African record on our understanding of how people before Homo sapiens were adapting to their environments through technology. And that's what took us to Colombo Falls in 2019. And before that, we had been working at a, a World Heritage Site, Victoria Falls, so, so two two waterfalls have, in, in a sense, framed this project.
1: You mentioned the work you were doing at Colombo Falls in 2019, and I know that a significant discovery came out of that work. So can you tell us what that discovery was and what the feeling was like when you realised that you might have come across something that was going to be notable for the field?
0: It's a feeling of um, unexpected joy because... <laughs> We never, found, we never thought we'd find wood because find we worked at Colombo in 2006. And at that time, we were trying to just date the site for the first time. We found stone tools. And there's a longer history of research at Colombo, not involving us. but going back into 1950s and 1960s by archaeologists called Desmond Clark. Clark and his team excavated a huge area. They found wood, uh, but they couldn't date the site they couldn't actually demonstrate the wood had been humanly modified because the wood had been smoothed by the river. We, we, were, we weren't looking for wood in 2019, but by accident of the river having removed the site we worked at in 2006, the team was left with a kind of the second choice of where to work, which was between the 2006 and the 1960s excavation, and we used Google Earth to identify a place where the river had exposed some sediments. So on that first day of moving to this new area, we we slid down the, the nine meter slope onto the riverbank and we could see these big stone tools from a period called the Achille and part of the early Stone Age. And walking to the river edge then looking over the the, into the river and into the side of the sediment, I could see wood sticking out and there was a broken piece of what looked like a small log and when I looked down in the river, I could see at the, at the base of the river the water was very clear. There was a piece of wood that looked as if it should map, match onto the piece that was broken in, this, in the section and it did and we knew from that first day we had an extraordinary lucky find of wood that we basically hadn't expected and In the short period we were there, the month we were there, we found wood everywhere we excavated. Now, Paris and her team from Motomoto Museum, they arrived pretty much just as we were finding this structure. And it was two pieces, two logs overlapping, forming a cross. And at the point of overlap, the top log had a notch in it. So it sat exactly snugly on top of the underlying log. At first, we thought this was natural. Maybe the river had just brought these two pieces of wood together. But as we looked more closely, we realized that the top log had been shaped. Uh, The ends are tapered. You can see the chop marks of the stone tools on the logs. And then when we got to the point of lifting the top log off and looking in the notch, we could see the notch had also been shaped. So this was deliberate. And there's more. The piece of wood underneath was also shaped just at the point where it passed through the notch. Whoever these people were, and they weren't homo sapiens, they uh, had this engineering principle of the notch, which stopped the, the top log from moving. It locked it in place. Um, and that's pretty much when Paris and her, her, her crew arrived.
1: And Paris, when you and your colleagues at the Moto Moto Museum arrived at the site, did it have a sense of something quite remarkable happening? Essentially,
3: I, I didn't really think it would be of any value. And if I may just state this, I, I was invited to be part of the project when I was at the Livingstone Museum. And my role then was basically to provide ethnographic data in terms of trying to interpret the, the tools. So at the time the project was starting, I had moved from Livingstone Museum. And so a few of my other colleagues were brought in to help with the excavations. But because I was very close to the site, I was so interested to just see what was happening at the site. and so. I uh, mobilized a team of colleagues at Mutumoto Museum on one particular day, we went to the site just to see what was, up to help with the day. And so we were so surprised to see this wood, but at the time we didn't really uh, seem to be of any significant value. And uh, we just thought anyway, it was one of those things and we we're looking forward to hearing what uh, the interpretation would be. So not until later this year, did we get to know really what it was.
1: And Nicola, where does your role as a technician fit into this project? I suppose there's a difference between being on site and things unfolding right in front of you, and then your work in analysing samples that come back to you.
2: Yeah, so I actually started the role as a technician uh, in 2020, so relatively late to the project. But as part of the role, we have quite a lot of research involved in that. So we are actually uh, called research technical professionals now. The job role has changed. So that implies the amount of research that we're actually carrying out as part of the position. I came onto the project and really was analysing the wood and looking for any evidence of burning And the previous technician before me had already gone through a few different uh, methods. And we were finally at the stage of looking at something called infrared spectroscopy. So that's a technique, it's usually used in chemistry, but as archeologists, we just love to um, steal everyone's instruments and analytical techniques. So we applied the infrared spectroscopy that works. You only need a tiny sample. And it works by infrared light and it excites a sample and the molecules in the sample vibrate. And then you can measure the vibrations and each molecule will have a different vibration and will sit somewhere else on a spectra. So you can kind of look at the molecular bonding in a sample. What we found, so we had the ancient examples and then we had some modern reference examples from Kew Gardens, so you can look at, you need the modern reference samples um, to make heads and tails of the information. And what we found in the ancient sample, particular in the area of burning, so the ancient samples had a lot of silica in, which would fit with the silification uh, of the wood. In the area that we thought was potentially burnt, the silica peak was flattened, So I actually looked into it and on burnt samples, silica entry is actually prevented because of the way the structure changes. So a small indication that potentially that area that we thought looked burnt is burnt. So that was my role in the project. But again, that's really interesting if we can conclusively determine that it was burnt because it just shows that another level of planning, these the individuals that were manipulating the wood were, had different technologies.
1: You admitted to having a habit of stealing technologies and methods from other departments and disciplines. And I think that's something that your university would probably quite proudly call an interdisciplinary approach to research. I imagine that the ability to learn from and build on the work of other researchers, both in your field and beyond brings real benefits to your work. And it sounds like the Deep Roots of Humanity project not only spans disciplines, but also borders, so you're working both within the University of Liverpool, but also in collaboration with Paris and the Moto Moto Museum. So could you tell me more about the interdisciplinary and cross-border approach that the project demands?
2: Yeah, so within the Elizabeth Slater labs, we have a range of different instruments, and they all do different things. Uh, My PhD was actually in material science, so I'm a metallurgist. But using the skills um, and the knowledge of the instruments, you can apply that to a range of different materials. We also work really closely with other departments like chemistry and essential teaching labs in the university uh, to borrow their techniques. I think as an archaeologist, you really have to think outside the box when you're trying to answer research questions. So we will pull from any discipline. That involves a lot of research and reading about potential applications of techniques. For example, we've actually just purchased a laser ablation inductively coupled mass spectrometer that's taken from geology. Um, That's capable of analysing materials down to parts per trillion. So we can start looking at Resources of metals and mixing lines and all kinds of things. So depending on the academic that's heading up a project, the research question that you're trying to answer, and the material that you're looking at, we really will just pull from any discipline.
0: I always think of, of archaeology as uh, this kind of scientific archaeology as as magpie archaeology. We're stealing <laughs> things, as as Nikki said. Even within our department, in addition to Nikki's great work, we have some expertise in photography, which was essential in building these three-dimensional visual models of the wood for us to study the the, the marks, and we also had to keep the wood underwater all the time. So that involved an innovative camera box that was created by a colleague, um, which allowed us to photograph the wood without taking it out and letting it dry. Uh, we have expertise in experimental archaeology. So we have a, a colleague who makes stone tools. Who was also at Calambo Falls, and he brought back some of the rock that was used prehistorically to make tools. So he made, he replicated those tools, and then used them on wood to shape it. So we could use the modern shaped wood as a reference collection for understanding the prehistoric wood. So that's still within the, the department. And then going cross borders into Wales. We have the, the the dating work by uh, Professor Jeff Duller and his work was essential because without the date, we wouldn't be here talking about how amazingly old the site is and how it predates Homo sapiens. So His work at the University of Aber- Aberystwyth on uh, luminescence dating, that's a fundamental bit of the physics that underpins the, the, the chronology of the site. We have geomorphologists, we have Geomorphologist is at Royal Holloway. We have a, a Useware specialists at the University of Liege in Belgium I'm probably leading somebody out. but, but of course we've got Paris and Moto Motor Museum, which brings us the kind of humanities element of this, which is the ethnographic side of um, contemporary traditional woodworking. So we pulled all that together to make this um, body of evidence to support what we realize are extraordinary claims. And if you make extraordinary claims, you better have extraordinary support evidence. And I think that's why it took us quite a while to put this together, because we knew um, the world would be looking and saying, yeah, prove it.
1: And Paris, what was your experience from outside of the University of Liverpool, joining the project, bringing your own expertise and the Motomoto Museum's more locally focused input? Larry also highlighted that there's more of a humanities tilt to the work that you do.
3: I've I've been following Larry's work from as far back as 1994, He may not know this, because I remember he's been doing a lot of collaborative works with Zambian researchers. Yes, I remember the Mumbai excavations, Larry. (laughs) Yes, so then uh, I've been following on his works and uh, over the years when I was at the museum, he would send some of his students to come and work on our collections. And from that kind of experience, we created some kind of network and it was very easy to follow up on whatever he was doing. And so when he approached me in 2015 at Levinson Museum and uh, impressed on me the fact that there's a project that was coming up and he would need somebody to help with collecting ethnographic data to feed into the project in terms of uh, helping to interpret the archeological finds in terms of tool making. I was more than delighted to be part of the project. So uh, it's been really something that uh, has helped a lot of zambian researchers especially from the museums i think a number of people have benefited from this kind of collaborative research works and also speaking uh, from the point of uh, international uh, cross-border kind of networks or collaboration it also helps the local researchers uh, in the sense that research is very expensive and so it's kind of um, providing a lot of mentorship with a number of museum staff in zambia And uh, when this came up, we also benefited a lot because not only did the research we're doing, the sideline research we're doing feed into the project, but it also helped us to uh, kind of um, enhance our collection interpretation. So there's so much work that we still need to do as museums, but we lack the resources to do uh, what we want to do. And so when uh, such kind of uh, opportunities come, we actually kind of benefit uh, by learning on the site, as well as enhancing our own interpretation in the museums. So it's been a very great experience for me and my team.
1: It's great to hear that this kind of collaboration with Liverpool is helping to empower the work that you're doing locally. And so I'd love to hear more about how local communities are considered and their knowledge and expertise incorporated.
3: I think the, the best part of the uh, Deep Roots Humanity, of Humanity Project uh, it didn't require us to do um, it didn't require us to do ethical approval because we're not dealing with uh, human subjects like directly in the research. But perhaps if I may add this Larry, if I may, uh, the sideline project that we're doing that fed into the uh, deep priest of Humanity project required us to do a lot of uh, consultation with the investor of Zambia in terms of uh, ethical approvals and it did take us quite a long time.
1: And looking forward to the next steps with this research, what real-world impact has it had and how do you plan to build on this?
0: The impact has been overwhelming in the sense of global interest. Um, I I was just looking at the metrics today and I was telling Nikki about how many downloads there have been of the article, the number of views of the video, the constant uh, requests for interviews. It carries on. We're almost a month on and people are still asking and, and questions about it, wanting to learn about it. Now that's curiosity, but that I think the impact from the academic perspective of impact in terms of making a change is coming in terms of people, both colleagues in the field, but also the public saying to me, you have altered the way we, I think about the c- capabilities of early humans before homo sapiens. That's been the same impact for me is that I had no idea what we were excavating was going to be this old and when I realized it was and it predated Homo sapiens it, it affected how I was, it, it made me realize that I had these assumptions about what pre-Homo sapiens could do and could not do and this, this kind of blew them out of the water for me and I think that's been the same uh, for colleagues and like globally and people are actually making these testimonials saying you, you in a sense changed history but certainly it's history in, in, in terms of people's assumptions about the past, people's mindsets. And I think by opening mindsets, we may be opening the ways to new questions about early humans and what they could do, and thinking about what we're missing in the archaeological record and how that hampers how we construct our theories and our methods. So it, it's, it's multiple impacts um, and it's ongoing, so I you to know, come and ask me in, in in a year's time, then I might be able to add more to that. But I hope in the longer term, Paris, that we when we when the wood comes back to Zambia, wherever it's put, that it's put on display and. So it, it's available for everyone to come and see you know, within Zambia and also internationally come, come, come and see this, this material because it, it is um, <laughs> it's crazy what people were doing with wood with trees half a million years ago. So that, that's the one of the longer term aims and the other is that I, I hope we can have the site uh, protected as a world heritage site and that would be the lasting impact. so it's, it's there for future generations of, of researchers.
1: It's wonderful that the implications of this discovery are reaching so far and as its impact continues to evolve, what are your hopes for the future of this research and also your work more broadly?
2: My role is um, constant research and we are actually especially as a department and as the Elizabeth Slater Labs, looking at how we can open up access to allow smaller institutions to access our facilities, and we can start looking at local cultural material and getting more information for those smaller institutions, smaller museums, so they can share that with their wider public. I think cultural heritage is really important, And it's important for local people to see what fascinating things were going on in their area. Sometimes the questions always raise, like, why do you do archaeology? But I just feel like archaeology really is able to connect people to how amazing humans are and what we're capable of. And I think that's always a really nice message.
3: From the Zambian side, I think the first really significant achievement has been the fact that for a very long time, the Zambian agency that is responsible for protection of heritage sites has been trying to have the Colombo Force site uh, uh, listed as a World Heritage Site. And so there has been a number of uh, maybe values that were presented as the reason for them wanting it to be listed. But with this discovery, I think it enhances the, the justification why the site should be listed. And so everybody's talking, the National Heritage Conservation Commissioner, are already on the, the matter trying to get to ride on this discovery and get the site listed as the world heritage site so it will mean zambia would have two world heritage sites that is uh, the first thing that victoria falls and this is a very big achievement for zambia because you know world heritage sites are a very big uh, tourist attraction and so already the minister of tourism has been talking to the national museum's board trying to find out what this means and how we are going to take up this in terms of preservation and uh, maybe growing numbers of tourists visits to Zambia. I'll
0: just say thank you, Paris, for that news. I mean that's really good to hear. The Ministry of Tourism is, is, is getting on board. I and mean, I was just talking to your colleagues in National Heritage this morning, so, that, so we're moving this forward. Ashton, I'll just go back a little bit to um, collaboration and, and um, local relationships. Something we haven't talked about uh, are, are the local communities around the sites that we work on. And while we were, were at Colombo, we brought the, the one school in, in the school children and the school teacher. Um, and we went and talked to the community, the local community, the elders. And it, there was huge interest and a desire for the site to become something that would attract visitors, to bring income, basically to make lives a little bit better, a little bit easier. Um, so I think that's another spin-off, I, I hope, of the World Heritage Listing, is bringing in people who will benefit the local community and, and let the local community manage this heritage resource because they have a knowledge there about what it what it means to them that was introduced to me. And I um, I had, as an outsider, had no appreciation for the beliefs associated with the site, for example. Um the spirits and things and how important the site is. And I think it's important for the for the next generation to be aware of this, and we can help preserve this with, with the World Heritage Listing um, and with the n- engagement of, of Ministry of Tourism and Museums Board and National Heritage. So those are kind of maybe small things, but I think it, it all starts at the local level because these are the people who look after the, these places, and maybe not in a formal way, but informally. They are the guardians and... Uh, I think if the guardians who should benefit from this. But, and thinking longer term, you know, it kind of selfishly, the overwhelming response to this discovery and the importance of discovery means it should be possible to raise the funding on on a large scale to go back. It'll be a big project because. Most of the site is under either nine meters of sediment, that's a lot of digging, or it's completely wet. And we know from the work done in the 1960s, there's another two, two meters below, there's still wood to be found. Probably a couple hundred thousand years more evidence of woodworking. So there's there's great academic potential here. But the site really does need, in the first instance, to become fully protected geologically, culturally, um, and, and, and without that protection, I don't want to plan the excavations. I want to make sure I can do what I can do from my academic advantaged position to make this listing happen.
1: It's excellent to hear that you're making progress towards having the site protected, And that piece of good news does bring us to the end of our conversation today. So I'd just like to thank you, Larry, Nicola and Paris again for joining me and sharing these exciting developments. I look forward to seeing what the next year brings to the three of you and the Calambo Falls site. For more insights from this conversation, you can visit the Times Higher Education and University of Liverpool hub at timeshighereducation.com forward slash University of Liverpool. Subscribe to the THE Connect podcast to receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released.